You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 209, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. For this edition of the podcast, I spoke with Max Feinstein. We last spoke with Feinstein on the podcast back in February of 2020. And since then, obviously, a lot has happened. In addition to a global pandemic that had profound ramifications on the day-to-day workings of his Hoboken, New Jersey-based studio, Silver Horse Sound, a building fire in December of 2021 has left the future of the studio in its current space in question. Nevertheless, Feinstein has persevered, and he just released a new album called Redefine. The record primarily explores his experiences living and coping with hemophilia and sees him expanding his already eclectic sonic palette. During our interview, Feinstein and I touched on a array of topics, including what the current situation is with Silver Horse Sound, his advocacy work, in the hemophilia community, the inspiration behind some of Redefine's standout tracks like Dear Anxious, Bleed, and Borderlines, and much more. Plus, Max picked some excellent records, including some great cuts from XTC, Bula, and Jawbox. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms please remember to rate review like and subscribe on your platform of choice i also encourage you to check out the look at my records website where you can find reviews premieres of new music playlists and a whole lot more check it out at lookatmyrecords.com Tom Gil- Hey, Max. Hey, Tom. How are you? Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy, you know, talking to people, talking into microphones. I haven't done a whole lot of that lately, so it brings a little normalcy back to my yeah, life. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you here because this is only the third in-person conversation I've had with someone on this podcast in since we spoke at your studio in like February of 2020. So it's cool to be able to speak to someone in person. I find the conversation flows way better in my opinion. It's so much better, especially when it comes to people who have a rapport. It's just that much easier. And it's funny to think about that last conversation because like we hung out and then like three weeks weeks later, nobody was working. Like, no, the world ended, basically. Yeah. A lot has happened with you in that two-year period. It's about exactly two years ago we spoke, because I was watching the video I have of you playing Shade Shade of the Trees, Shade from the Trees, that's on YouTube that I posted. Great video, great song, and it's dated February 2020. So now it's March, but yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's been it's been a weird couple of years and for some of us we're still really shaking off the weird. Um 
I know a lot of people, it seems it didn't really have much of an impact on. Like my sister just kind of started working from home. Got to focus on uh, making a human being. So I got uh, a new nephew. His name is Simon. That's amazing. Your cool Uncle Max that will teach Simon all about music and shit. I've been an uncle since before I was. Oh born. wow! <laughs> I got I got some older brothers, like way older. Yeah. Yeah. Like my oldest brother is in his sixties now, wow. Wow. and he has. Uh, well, I have uh, my eldest niece Alyssa is uh, about three years older oh, wow. than I am. <laughs> so I've been Uncle Max since I was a kid, and it was weird and funny, <laughs> like because I'd have you know. A couple of little girls around my age and one of them older and me saying, hi, Uncle Max. <laughs> and that was the joke. When my sister told me that she was pregnant, I'm like, wait, you mean I'm going to be an uncle? <laughs> Whereas like she for, for real this time. Yeah. I mean, my brother, my other brother has a couple of younger uh, kids yeah. who are they're They're cool. My my niece, Stella, is really cool. I think she's been working at the Pony right now. Stone Pony? Yeah. She, cool. She's in high school now and she's been working at the stone pony and i think that's the coolest thing it's a great high school job get exposed to a lot of awesome music working at the stone pony seriously so we last talked in february 2020 the pandemic happened we spoke at your studio silver horse sound in hoboken and then obviously the pandemic happened that affected your ability to go to the studio probably in record music. And then unfortunately there was a massive fire in the building that houses silver horse sound. Two people unfortunately died in that fire. So I know it's been a really hard couple of years for the studio in particular. How's everything going now though? Um, it's in a holding pattern. Uh, it took us a little while to get, our collective stuff together because I guess uh, let's start with the beginning of that statement. It was weird for a minute when nobody was doing anything. So like March through April where it was just ill-advised to go anywhere. Yeah, everybody was just home. Yeah. We were trying to flatten the curve. Uh, Oh my, how, how we succeeded, huh? (laughs) Um, But what was nice about it was I had I had kind of gotten into this regimen around May when it was like, yeah, you can you can go just be safe, like, you know, wear your mask in the common areas. But by and large, there wasn't a whole lot happening there at the time. So I would go into my rooms and I would have this morning routine of getting there by about 8 a.m. and just working on things, just playing guitar and just trying to add some kind of normalcy to my life before uh, physical therapy, which was something I had committed to. And we'll get into that in a little yeah. bit. But the studio was slowly coming back. We were recording bands like, you know, Greg McLaughlin is a regular of ours. Uh, Howlin' Bill and the Basement Dwellers, uh, we had just started working with. I'd been producing a few of them, and, and one of my favorite bands in the scene, The Cliffhangers, we were getting ready to produce a second record of theirs. But the fire was very traumatic, and I've had to really admit to myself that I'm not okay right now. Yeah. That it's going to take a while, because I was there a few hours before the fire broke out. I was there with my friend Ewan, who 
uh, has a fish and chip shop called the Hangry Haggis. Ewan's a bit of a renaissance man in general. <laughs> He's also kind of my manager, uh, which is nice to have a, a man with a deep Scottish accent who will speak tersely on my behalf. I'm hoping he'll be my Peter Grant, you know, <laughs> just be my muscle and and muscle me into cool things. We'll see. It's, it's a new relationship, but my friendship with Ewan is a cherished thing. Uh, so when he offered to help out a little bit, I'm like, thank you. He even helped us with the, with the accent from the building, but we were hanging out and I'd showed him some of the new record. And then I went to go grocery shopping and I heard some sirens and didn't really think a whole lot of it. Went to bed, got a phone call from my business partner, ben, uh, you know, Johnny Rock, who's my best friend in the world. And we're talking like 730 in the morning and I have this superpower where I can wake up out of a dead sleep and speak on the phone as if I've been awake for hours. I'm just apparently able to be fully cogent a millisecond after waking up. And I do that. And the first thing he says is, building's on fire. It's gone. And I'm just like, whoa. And I sit there in silence for a bit. And he says, you know, we'll regroup in a little bit. Uh, I'm going to go check it out. I'll let you know. And I just sit there. And I'm having this super sober conversation. And I asked my wife to just come by. I'm like, hey, I just need you to hold me for a second. I can't, I can't right now. This is what I was told. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know where this goes. I don't know what happened. But we heard that there were explosions, like building rattling explosions. And for anyone listening to this who doesn't know the Chambord building, it used to be the Mighty Fine Pudding Factory. In fact, on the blueprints, it's still labeled as such in the same way that like water music was a feather processing yeah. plant and the Newman Leather Building was a tanner. You know, that that's how a lot of the cool studios in Hoboken formed was finding these old factories, these massive concrete houses that are just super sturdy and big. So for something to rattle a building like that, to my estimation, you'd need something more than an M80. Like a quarter stick of dynamite's not going to rattle a building. We had friends on the Jackson Street side. Mike Ferraro was one of our clients, and he was there, and he said it felt like a plane landed on the building. So, like, we're talking some serious stuff there. And this was the week of Christmas. And maybe it was, like, 1220, like December 20th. December 23rd, the building reignited, and they had to deal with that. It was very uncertain for a while, and then it reignited again on, like, the day after Christmas. Like, Boxing Day was all embers. So there was a little while where every time I heard a siren in the heights, I was kind of expecting the building to be up in flames again. But we were truly fortunate. Our wing of the building is unscathed uh, we're like a window away from taking any real damage so when we went in there it was kind of like opening up a time capsule like the lights weren't on we were working by phone flashlight at first but for you know all intents and purpose if they turned the power back on we could have gone right back to business and unfortunately two people died to, they may have been squatting there and they may have also been working late at night i've been there at all hours myself you know, I, I did a lot of the overdubs on my new record at 3 a.m. over old Takoria nachos. Like, I have been there at every hour. I have slept there overnight sometimes. 
So the thought that that could have been me, that could have been anyone, is is not lost on me. And these were people who didn't have a whole lot of family. They worked at the Home Depot. Um, and when I went to Reddit to talk about it, so many people came out to say, no, this guy was in the paint department. She was in gardens. They were so helpful. They're gone? So it was a very bittersweet element to doing the GoFundMe for them because they didn't have a lot of family. And and we did ours, but I needed to make sure that theirs had been met first before I could do mine. Yeah, it was so tragic, the loss of those two lives. I remember sharing with you that I remember one of the individuals from working in the paint department in Home Depot and how enthusiastic and helpful they were. There was kind of like a cloud of suspicion surrounding the fire in this building. And I know the month and maybe two months after it happened, really challenging for a lot of the tenants. If for anyone that's not in this live, doesn't live in Jersey City or Hoboken, feel like they may not be totally familiar with the building. It's a big warehouse building with a lot of artist uh, spaces, uh, studio spaces. There was a, a gym on the ground floor. So a lot of these people lost their businesses, lost their spaces. About and, 80 businesses. Yeah. And the response from the city of Hoboken and others was kind of lackluster. There was not a lot of communication from them or they weren't really responding to your concerns. So what was the month? and month and a half like after that hyper vigilant it was yes we were trying to meet with city officials and the chambord building falls under the purview of uh i believe that's the fourth ward which is overseen by councilman ruben ramos and we had been the, the, almost immediately we were promised a meeting with him that he, he wouldn't have been able to make anyway. Somebody promised time he didn't have. So we were there waiting in the cold for this. And that puts a bitter taste in a guy's mouth. And so I had a, a moment of just fuck it, fuck it. There was a lot of rage. And it's easy to think about it in the worst possible way, especially when Hoboken has been a city that has been very, very enthusiastic about development to the point in which, uh, from my opinion, it has been overly developed. And a lot of people share this opinion, and I'm not adverse to capitalism. I'm not adverse to the idea of improving the situation of a town, but the way that it's happened has been... Um, in a way that I would say is a little dangerous for the ecosystem. It's definitely choked out a lot of the culture, but it's also made it so that the city doesn't necessarily listen. And you really have to work to get that. What was worse, because a lot of this, yes, the city can only, you know, they can listen, but they can only do so much. Yeah. What was worse was the building management. The building management and the building owners were giving us runaround for the month. And we got very fed up about it because we were in the dark. To my knowledge, this was the only federally investigated fire in Hoboken's long celebrated wow. history of arson. I know the ATF came in yeah. to investigate it. So we ended up having to protest to be able to get information or to be able to get in and get our stuff. 
because what happened was Terrazzi, the company that owns the building now, had apparently filed on December 23rd uh, for a special meeting with the Historical Society with, uh, you know, while they say otherwise, the word demolition is on that paper. And that put a feeling in us, especially when there has been no communication, that they just wanted to knock that down and put whatever they wanted to put up without giving us the opportunity to get our stuff. And maybe that wasn't their intention. I'm not here to cast aspersions, yeah. even though I really, really want to. It's not fair to. So I'm trying to do the best with what I say to give the benefit of the doubt. And even giving the benefit of the doubt, the way that we confronted them, this individual handled it quite poorly uh, in a very deflective way uh, because we ended up protesting. We ended up protesting for clarity because the management company said they weren't going to talk to us anymore, that we got to talk to the owners. The owners were like, talk to the management. The city's like, talk to them. We don't know. And we ended up in 13-degree weather with a wind chill going over to the home of one of these owners and protesting. And he came out saying, guys, talk to management. We said, the management said to talk to you. It's like, that's not <laughs> Typical, my fault. Right? Yeah. And the, the ultimate thing that I want to impart here to anyone listening, as a business owner, as somebody who's run projects, even if nothing is your fault, you hired the people at yes. fault, so ultimately it is your responsibility to see whatever is next through. And if you can own that, then the malcontented will at least respect you that slight Absolutely. bit more. And that protest should have been an email. Not on our end. If they had said, because this was going to suck no matter what, and I'm resigned to that because what happened was it was an investigation, so it was off limits. It was a crime scene, yeah. potentially. So the feds had to go in, the county had to go in, and then the civil engineer for the insurance company had to go in. Now, if I were the individual that I'm scrutinizing here, and I will say it was very gratifying to have 25 people bearing down on one person, I'm not usually that guy, but... In this case, it was very gratifying. If this were me, even with legal consultation, I would have found a way to get an email out to the people who needed to see it that said, hey. Yeah, obvious. It seems obvious. It, right? it, yeah. Yes and no, <laughs> because it's murky, and yeah. it was going to be murky for everyone, but we should have all been in it together. There could have been a way to make it seem that way. Yeah. And it would have been something like, hey, guys – we don't know when this is going to start. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know what order it's going to go in. But right now, we do know that before anyone can get in, the federal investigation, the county investigation, and then the insurance investigation have to take place. How long each of those is going to be, we can't say. That's not anything we know. But we're going to let you know when one commences and we're going to let you know when the baton gets passed. That's, you know, if they had just done that, I would have held them in better regard because there was no way procedurally it was going to be expedient because this also happened during a holiday. This happened the week of Christmas <laughs> and then you have New Year's. So you've got all these... It's like a dead space where nothing ever happens. Exactly. Really. So all of this looks so bad. Yeah. But we 
you know, the protest worked. We were able to get in in some regards, and now we have this unfettered access to a building we can't use, but at the very least, that means we can, you know, finish getting our stuff out. We still have some things in there, and I have hope that I might be able to give that place a proper send-off. I don't know what that means yet, but you know me, I'm a little bit of a schemer, and if I can still use that space in some way to be creative, even if it doesn't have power, we got generators, we can turn the lights on at the least, but I can bring my laptop and an interface and an acoustic guitar and try something. I don't know what that is yet. I don't want to make promises, but that's sort of where that is. So after February, the first week of February, when we got the rest of our stuff out was when I could really start to unclench and like start processing. And that's really where we're at now. So what's the future of the building? Maybe you don't know that, but what's the future of the building? And then what's the future for Silver Horse Sound now? Well, the building was denied in part thanks to our protest, any potential demolition. Demolition, good. I don't know what that means for us. I, I doubt that means we're going to resume anything in that building because, like it or not, there was always going to be some sort of restructuring. They were always going to have that building on the chopping block in one form or another. It was sold to this group last year in, like, June-ish, and they've been trying to redevelop that corner for a long time, and most of the propositions... Most of the proposals have fallen through because nobody's done the research, nobody's done the traffic surveys. I have a really great friend named Jules uh, of the band Illegal Chicas who's also an architect, and she made very clear to me that there's a reason why a lot of this hasn't gone through yet. And I agree. Like I realize certain things are inevitable, and I realize that going through this is going to price a lot of people out of their factory space, which is unfortunate. Maybe some will get to stay, but I can't say what's going to happen for the building. Maybe it'll end up a Whole Foods, for all I know. I don't want to say that necessarily derisively, but I hope at the very least it becomes an asset to Southwest Hoboken. If it can't be a business center the way it was, and that's effectively what it was, and a lot of people didn't realize just what that building meant to a lot of people. A lot of people didn't realize that this was a place where the non-nine-to-fivers got to got to be themselves. People didn't, they were like, ah, it's real suspect that people were in there at, after midnight. Like, no, it wasn't. wasn't. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No, like for the last 10 years, I was able to keep my noisemakery separate from my personal life. My wife has never had to suffer through a cranked tube amp. <laughs> you know, I can go there at 2 a.m. if I wanted to, you know, take the last 85 into Hoboken, grab a lift, walk in, whatever, and be as loud as I want at 2 a.m. without any noise complaints. That was a true privilege, and that was a true luxury to have. For us, I'm not sure what's next. Uh, we may be looking at a couple of spaces. We may be looking at a basement somewhere and just building out that way. We may be looking in another city. I would love to be able to stay in the area, but I can't promise anything right now uh, other than we're starting to work out of other people's studios who've offered. Uh, my buddy Chris Kelly out of Brooklyn has a place called Studio Del Diablo that I've done a lot uh, that, that, that I've wanted to work out of. He's offered that to me 
my buddy Corey Zach up in the Heights has Cocoon, and we're going to be doing some work out of there. I think Johnny's already starting to, but I've been a little hesitant to resume things because I've been very out of sorts, and I yeah. just needed to not be okay. Yeah, and we're looking forward to whatever the future holds for the studio, and it's good to see that you're picking up the pieces and trying to move forward in some capacity, even though it will take some time and it is challenging. January was very much the struggle because we had to be, again, vigilant. Like, are they going to bring a wrecking ball in under our noses? Are we going to have to commit the crime of trespassing to get what's rightfully ours yeah. out of there? Is that what this is? And, and now that we're past that, now that, you know, it's been, we've been able to unclench a little and kind of really start processing because otherwise you're still in this uh, amygdalic place and you're not able to truly process things while you're still going through them. Crazy, crazy situation that hopefully is going to get a little better, but I'm very sorry that all of you have had to go through that with Silver Horse Sound and the building that it is housed in. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of people uh, that I that are displaced in this, and I I gotta take solace in the fact that we were you know relatively unscathed. Yeah, we're displaced, but some people really got damaged. Some people lost their lives. Ultimately, we ended up with probably the best outcome in the worst situation. Before we get into redefine your new record, your awesome new record. I wanted to talk about, because I saw you post recently, about your invention, the mod stand. It's a microphone stand with a built-in pedal board space. And I know you worked for many years to get a patent for it, and it was a challenging road. But I saw you posted recently that it was granted uh, approval. So congratulations Thank on that. You. That's really awesome. Thank you. Ta take us into that process and how did it feel to finally get that approved well i'll clarify that the mod stand specifically is like a little bracket and flange system yeah. that mounts onto other people's pedal boards gotcha. and lets you put the mic stand on it yeah so it's this little rectangular dealie and, and the way i've been shorthanding it is that i invented a rectangle or the rectangle <laughs> and that's fun it's colorful uh but this started with an idea i had when i worked at water music because I had just gotten one of those big Furman pedal boards, which were the style at the time, which for those of you who don't know, uh, Furman pedal board is essentially this large square of plywood with Velcro on it and a power strip attached to it. A very unwieldy thing, but highly common. I would wager it an industry standard for gigantic pedal boards. Around... 2013-ish, that stopped being the standard, and things like pedal train, basically aircraft-grade aluminum pedal boards that were lighter and less cumbersome and had more modularity to them, where you could just kind of mount things underneath them, and you could zip tie things to these things rather than Velcro. I'm a little anti-Velcro a lot of the time, because I just, it's, shit's heavy, but the idea started from that. As I became a singing guitar player, I found it cumbersome to orient my effects around a mic stand. So this was something I wanted to do for me. 
at least. And I started researching this in 2011 to see if somebody had already done it because I would have happily bought the thing if it had existed. That's that's the truth of it is I didn't want to like I didn't want to invent this. It just sort of happened that nobody else had made a thing that was going to make my life easier. So I just kind of put that idea away for a while after that. And in 2015, when I started touring in a band called the Devil Nellies, doing NASCAR shows and doing other things like that, I found myself revisiting the idea and I found myself revisiting it in utterly graceless ways. Um, just like taking flanges and drilling them into things and what Johnny calls my epoxy phase, uh, where I was just epoxying shit to shit and taking basically the equivalent of those big honking desktop mic stands and just attaching those to pedal boards. It just wasn't great. It was not great, but to the best of my ability, I proved the concept from there. And again, this is at this point, just something for me. Just, just something to make my life easier as a musician, personally. I ended up in contact after Googling rock and roll metal worker. And this company, Metal Dozer Machine Works, comes up. And Metal Dozer is run by a guy out of Sugar Hill, Georgia, named Jay Dozer, Jason Dozer. And Jason is an A-list metal worker. He's probably best known for making mic stands for Prince at the end of his career. Uh, one of them is featured in the Paisley Park Museum. And they were essentially these podium-shaped things. It was a mic stand with the love symbol on it in a big way, and it kind of made it look like a podium. That was Jason's work. I'm like, if it's good enough for Prince, this is the guy. Because <laughs> a lot of times you'll get to talk to metal workers and they're not so familiar with most things. But this guy makes bespoke mic stands. That's his That's his wheelhouse. So I reached out to him. I'm like, hey, I'm trying to do this thing where I attach a mic stand to a pedal board. And he's not much of a guitarist, so I kind of had to explain some of those concepts there. But right off the bat, his first draft of it for me was exactly what it needed to be. It was yeah. made out of scrap metal, and it just bolted on with basically truss bolts that you would drill together to make lighting rigging. So, very simple. And I worked on that, worked with that for a few years, and somebody was like, you should patent this. And I thought about it, and I explored it once with a lawyer at NAM, and he's like, you've had that in the public eye already. You can't patent it. And I'm like, Argh. and so I kind of <laughs> didn't think about that. And we're talking like 2017 yeah. at this point. And in 2018, I was thinking about it again, and my friend Sam Bembasudo, who did a lot of my artwork on my last releases, like she did Betamax, she did Annie's Gone, she did journeys so she'd done a lot of art for me we had just started a collaborative relationship like that and she encouraged me to give it another pass and she pointed out to me that another mutual friend of ours alex pergament had you know his family is in patent law so through their largesse i was able to pursue the patent because they said just change it slightly and the truth of the matter is changing it slightly meant just taking another one and mounting it underneath. Yeah. <laughs> it saved me like six months of R&D to make it work on all different pedal boards. But it was already doing the thing for me. 
And so we hit the non-provisional or the provisional patent. Yeah. And in that time, we got it onto a, a remarkable pedal board. There's a band called Fozzy. Uh, that's Chris Jericho's band. Yeah. Right? Yes. And his guitar player is uh, Richard Ward. And Rich Ward is known for another band called Stuff Mojo as well. But Rich Ward had been using the mod stand on the uh, the tour they were on on 2019 where they were opening for Iron Maiden. So that was pretty solid. Yeah. They're like, this thing is rocking tens of thousands of people's faces. <laughs> that was That was pretty cool. And there's one situation now that I'm really excited about, and I, I won't divulge it yet lest it be untrue. We don't know yet. Um, but right now, ah, fuck it, I'll divulge it. Yeah, divulging. So among the clients of Jay Dozer for Mike Stans, he's done Mike Stans for the Backstreet Boys, he's done them for Tony Braxton, he was talking about David Coverdale today. But one of his most remarkable clients is James Labrie from Dream Theater. Nice. So yes. every album cycle, he has a thematic mic stand. So this oh, one, wow. yeah, the last one was Distance Over Time, and the artwork was like a robot arm holding a skull. So they fashioned something like that for them. And they, on this tour for View on the Top of the World, it's like a viewfinder-looking thing. And we decided to send one to John Petrucci. And I can't tell right now because of the orientation of all of the, the, the like the phone footage and stuff yeah. that I'm seeing of their tour. But there are these little tells in the way his rig is oriented because his wedges are in the way of me seeing his board. So I can't tell with certainty, but certain aspects about A, how close those wedges are to the board be how the mic stand itself is oriented it's tilted a little bit forward and the boom is a little bit shorter yeah. now which is kind of what having your pedal board at an angle will do if you're mounting the mod, the mod stand to it so it's been like looking for bigfoot in photos <laughs> it's been amazing it's i've been fucking pulling my hair out on it but i mean even if he's not using it i'm grateful that he had one yeah I hope he's using it because John Petrucci is a well-known gear tastemaker. But, John, if you ever listen to this, thank you for at least considering it. I'm grateful. Thank you, John. That's awesome. Yeah, so there's that. I can't speak with certainty as to whether or not he is. I don't want to jinx it, but I'm hoping we'll know soon. And I've been talking to Jay about it. And he's like, I know, I can't see either. <laughs> He'll be they'll be going through Georgia next week, so he'll he'll be on the stage. He'll get to check it. So we'll, so we'll know soon enough. <laughs> but that's been that's been like a glimmer of of coolness in my world. So I just I just want to say on the mod stand uh, front that I could not have done this without Jay, but I especially could not have done this without uh, my buddy Alex Pergament, who runs Prototype Patterson, and his family they were very good to me they were kind to me so thank you and to sam for recommending that i give it another pass i don't know that i would be doing this yeah because i remember you know knowing this about you this mod stand thing and then recently seeing that you know there were further developments it was cool to see it took 
from start to finish. I let's just say we began the application process. And for anyone who doesn't know, applying for a patent it's is long is, and hard, and stupid. Yeah. Um, it took from start to finish, let's say late 2018 to the beginning. So it took almost four years. Yeah, it took about three and a third years to get that going. There's the provisional patent, which is basically like hold my place in line yeah. while I do my I's and cross my T's. And then you apply for it. And a lot of people's, you know, Jay Hacha DeZola is a guy with patents. He's done, you know, he's a legit, intelligent, scientific man. And he was like, dude, just get ready. This is going to be, yeah. a, it's going to be really hard. And everybody tells you it's going to get kicked back over its wording and stuff. And it did. And it was really stupid because my thing was nothing like what they said it was like. And it was kind of like saying you can't patent the doorknob <laughs> because globes exist and they're both round and spin. <laughs> but to see it go through was, again, it was the culmination of a decade's worth of imagination. Yeah. And now I have a little certificate from the government that says I'm special. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you. So. I want to talk about your new record, Redefine, but before we specifically get into Redefine, I know the record really centers on your experiences living with hemophilia, which we talked about during our last interview two years ago. But since we last spoke, I know you're really involved in that community through political activism and associated things. What have you been up to in that realm over the last two years? Getting to lobby has been interesting. Getting to, you know, just this last week, we were lobbying about something, and I'll take this moment to get serious again. Uh, within the health insurance world, for anyone who may not know about them, and a lot of people don't because it's not going to impact most people, there's something called an accumulator adjuster clause. And an accumulator adjuster clause is something that is supposed to encourage people to use the generic version of whatever drugs they have, in part by essentially not honoring or applying third-party assistance programming that a specialty drug might have to your insurance policy. So if you don't have a generic version of your thing, the absence of wording to protect your right to use this will essentially be a giant hole. Yeah. So we were lobbying to get that hole closed because we don't have generics of rarefied clotting factors and whatever. And this is not just us. This is a lot of other chronic conditions. So got to lobby about that, got to lobby on behalf of what's called transformative therapies, which are things like gene therapies, which are essentially, you know, the thing people think that mRNA tech, you know, technology is, you know, we're, we are talking about trying to rewrite DNA with viral vectors and such. That is not what mRNA, uh, mRNA is. So I'm trying to bring attention towards those things, which has been nice. Otherwise, there are some music programs involved in the community that I've gotten to participate in. I've gotten to be a music teacher. I've gotten to do some light entertainment 
And otherwise, just try to be a creature of service within my community and recirculate within it. Because when we last talked, I had just begun. Yeah. And to to kind of grow into it and to become more of a a creature of of utility and to be somebody that people might I don't want to say look up to, but to be an example of struggle and some degree of perseverance yes. without like I have this worry about sugarcoating it because I don't want to do that. I feel like it's going to condescend the people I'm trying to talk to. But to be exemplary of the hardship or candid about the hardship is has been my goal. And a lot of people seem to be resonating with that. And that's really what I took away with uh, from the record to redefine was kind of just as you alluded to, you're not trying to be didactic, but you're trying to put your experience out there and how you handled it and persevered through it out there. So that maybe other people that take it in and listen to it can say, hey, look at this guy that persevered through it and kind of feel that and experience that. And maybe they draw some motivation from that. You remember that Ezra Furman record, Transangelic Exodus? Yes. That was a big influence on me because she really laid it out there you hear it in her voice she's shredding it she's screaming she's snarling she's really just making it very clear the the music itself the songs themselves do somewhat transcend the source material of i guess you could say it was gender dysphoria but it was absolutely a statement on the matter from the artist so that was an objective for me to be able to get just as raw about it as I could articulate myself to the best of my ability, but not mire it down in the rarity of the material. And, and one of, the, one of the, the, the moments I had with that that really led me to feel as though I was doing it correctly was just listening back to something in the studio. A lot of people were around me without hemophilia who, while I was writing this. And somebody said to me, you know, man, I know what you're writing about, but I feel like you're writing about me. Yeah. That led me to feel as though I was connecting with a greater, a greater pool because what it's really about in a lot of ways is the deconstruction of the way my brain talks to me yeah through a lens yeah of hemophilia but uh you know rage and depression are not uncommon feelings they're not unique to my experience it's just i had incompetent blood as the uh, catalyst for a lot of that so that was that was important to me is that i didn't go out because we have in our community some musical efforts. In fact, we actually have a musical. We have Hemophilia the Musical, which is when I talk about it outside the community, it feels like a little bit of an exercise in absurdism to me, but I also love that it exists and I understand why it exists. It exists to give younger hemophiliacs, younger people with hemophilia, a musical outlet. And what happened with that was a lovely individual named Paul from 
England helped compose this. And he himself doesn't have hemophilia, but he's a very compassionate man. Most musicians are. And so he took essays and such written by people with hemophilia, and he put them to music, and he made songs out of them. And it's very interesting that that happened, and I love that he did that. It's a compassionate act toward the community. But I had wanted to do something a little bit different. I had wanted to... I wanted to make a, a proper expression of myself. And I'd wanted to do it in a way that was perhaps a little less telegraphed. I'd never written about it before. I'd maybe written one song uh, off of Round of Sound called The End of Me, which alluded to it in a way because it was just about being in pain a lot, a lot of physical pain. But I'd never really written from the perspective of trying to unpack hemophilia and... These were all songs that I had been writing regardless. Like, some of these ideas really stretch back for me. But I had begun to go through a physical therapy routine in the middle of the quarantine when I couldn't work, when I couldn't do anything. And I was just kind of left to confront the wall. I was left to just contemplate the belly button and just you get sick and tired of being sick and tired and I had run from trying to deal with my issues with it for so long that I couldn't keep running. Like, last time we talked, I was in a place where I was trying to be aggressively productive to overcompensate because I didn't really have any options at the time. I was worried that if I took the time off to deal with myself that I would get outlapped that I would be seen as weak. And these are perceptions in my mind, not a reality. But I came from a background of tough it out. There's a lot of what my dad said. Hell, even Rob Grenoble kind of instilled a little bit of that into me, meaning well, but not understanding what the, 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 the situation at hand was. So I had nothing but time, so I made the time. And there's a physical therapist in New Jersey who is a hemophiliac. So that's like a unicorn situation. Yeah. So I started doing it because I didn't know what I could get back. I didn't know what I could do for myself, but I had to try. And we ended up being that I avoided an elbow replacement surgery, essentially. And the record was born from confrontation of that sort. I was deconstructing myself physically and then it became sort of a deconstruction mentally. Mentally, absolutely, yes. A lot of it, there was, I, I mentioned Ezra, but there's a lot of influence there from a musician named Devin Townsend as well, who um, I love. I love the self-analytical stuff uh, and just the idea of trying to deconstruct feelings and find a way to live with what you are. I ended up with this narrative that, was also vaguely inspired by the Divine Comedy, though less so than I thought that it would be at first. But I'd written a few songs during that period, and I've sort of pared them down to those seven. I'd written like 11 or 12 songs, and the, I like the other ones too, but these are the ones that told the story. Yeah. It's a really powerful record. I wanted to ask you about Dear Anxious in particular, because I remember reading an article about this track on NJ.com where you said you drew a lot of inspiration 
from Frank Zappa. And over the last like two years, I've been really like listening to Zappa a lot more, particularly his early stuff with the Mothers of Invention. So I was curious about how uh, Zappa's music or even his approach to life and that inspired more the that track in particular. Well, my relationship with Zappa is an interesting one. And I don't remember how much we talked about it last time, if at all, but uh, my introduction to Frank Zappa in earnest was my sister showing me a DVD from the Shake Your Booty era called Baby Snakes. And during that performance, there's a song called I Have Been In You that he's working up towards. And he's really just going to town on Peter Frampton. He's just he's just monologuing on Peter Frampton, who has a record called I'm In You. And it's just the the point he gets at, and it's one that he drives home in interviews, is that he feels as though rock and roll especially becomes a little too overwrought, that the music conveys an overly inflated or overly dramatic thing that reality can't aspire to. In specific, he was talking about love songs and how love songs are just so overwrought and they create this unrealistic expectation of what love is. And on Baby Snakes, he wraps it up by saying a lot of these things treat love like a conquest. They treat it like the end of the journey when the reality is love is the beginning. And as two married men, we kind of know that yeah. that's <laughs> what that is. It's it's like you have your love, but you also have the rest of your life with that love to manage. Yeah. So I've always gravitated towards, again, trying to present things reasonably or at least sort of diagram things out so that it's not just drama without substance, for lack of a term. So with Dear Anxious, that was a song I didn't know I was capable of writing because it is uplifting. It is a very specific sort of uplifting. And it's easy to get too fluffy with that. It's easy to get too platitudinal or whatever. And I wanted it to be a real message because I'm a cynical person. I'm a recovering cynic. So I wanted to get something that I could sing that was going to be, you know, hypoallergenic or something, because I would break out in hives singing something that didn't work out well. And and that just is where Zappa fit into the, the sort of the philosophy that I've been trying to take. Very cool. Borderlines is the second single from the record. It's also the first song on the record, so it's the lead-off track. And... You originally wrote different parts of that song as unrelated pieces. Tell us about the process of how they came together. Well, Borderlines goes backward because Dear Anxious is the youngest song on the record. Like I started writing that in 2020, just straight up. Borderlines goes back to like 2014. Wow. That's a long that's almost ten years ago. Eight yeah, years ago. I had been doing this sort of automatic writing process and I had just been going to what became Silver Horse. It was just kind of a room at the time and I was just working on ideas. I would just 
find something, record it, just put it down, and just sort of go from there. And I ended up with the beginnings of what is the first part of the song. It's Borderlines is in, it sort of has three different arcs. Um, it has, a lot of it is in the time signature of seven, and then it switches to the time signature of five. And then to the time signature of nine at the end, because I, I just, that's just where that went. And I had written the, the part in nine as an unrelated thing that I had thought I was going to write, like a Megadeth sounding thing around. And the part in five I had written as actually a component to the seven, and I just didn't necessarily know how they were all going to be a song. I had tried to do it in a structured way, like an ABAB sort of way. But the truth of the matter is that Borderlines is not typical in a lot of ways. The song structure is basically A and then B. It's almost like a world music piece to me, like where wow. you establish a theme, you stick with that theme, you build that theme out, and then you establish the next theme and you develop that. So you've got the seven is a way of really setting this pace, and the five is a way of reckoning with it. So it, it has these... They seem unrelated a little bit, but when I think about it now, this is just the way it should have been, because it would have been otherwise that I had it shifting from time signature back to time signature to another, and it would have just been overly convoluted. This was the way to simplify it. Yeah, it's a great, great song. Really awesome song. Great way to kick off a record. I thought so. Yeah, and a lot of uh, people that were helped me work on this record were were very appreciative of that too. One in particular, uh, the, the point is uh, that like usually the first and last songs are the ones that matter most, and so between that and the the title track of Redefine, I felt like I had something that this really kind of opened it up. But with Borderlines, it needed to really be the equivalent of uh, the scrolling words in a Star Wars movie. Yeah. Because I wanted to put somebody right into it. I wanted to give them the narrative, and I wanted them to know we weren't starting in a conventional place. We were, we were letting the dust settle on something, so to speak. And it's a song I'm proud of as well because it's it's got... I, I've been promoting the record as progressive grunge or something like that and i've always wanted to write kind of like a sound gardeny song and that to me is like my sound garden song yeah what i really like about the record is i think you're really able to piece together like some really diverse sounding tracks uh, stylistically but they still all really fit well together i remember specifically having this thought transitioning from stop the madness to charades which stop the madness is really like very funky at times and charades kind of gets there i feel like there's a, a, a big bl bluesy part towards the end with the guitars and the way it goes but it really starts out where the piano playing is like very centered on that song and i know when you sent this record uh there's a little blurb with it where you said the record is designed to work as one single song or as seven separate songs. So I felt like when listening to those two songs and how they kind of flow, but sound very distinct, really 
kind of hammered that quote home to me. I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you meant by that specifically and how you went about achieving that. Well, what I've come to see about my own content philosophy is what that speaks to in a part that I was feeling the same way. I don't even remember if I mentioned it when we were talking about Betamax last time, but I saw it the same way that Betamax was really just like a three-part suite that it was somewhat designed to be that way too. And and this is sort of a Zappa flavored thing to do as well because yeah. he had the great the great big song, which philosophically speaking is all of his body of work could be considered one giant comp- composition. So it, it has a root in that, but to me, I, I've started to feel as though if I'm going to create a collection of music, that it has to really resonate in that regard. It can't just be like a mixtape. It can't be like that. It has to feel like uh, an arc it exists. And I was on Betamax sort of pawing at some of the ideas that came into clarity on Redefine, the idea of establishing premise, of, of being a little artistically obtuse, uh, of trying to do something conventional, and then having this sort of very cathartic closure. And Borderlines through Redefine really makes that point in a in a more deliberate way when i was talking about it for betamax it was sort of afterthoughts here with stop the madness and charades especially i see them as two perspectives of the same thought yeah that stop the madness is perhaps well like a villain song in a way it's very sinister it's very overly dramatic in places it's very intense and then the dust settles and you're over your anger in that moment and you can reflect back on what's going on around you in a more sympathetic light you can really do that because stop the madness is just your brain really kicking the crap out of you over little things where it's like oh you haven't even tried to do better for yourself and then charades is like well, you kind of grew up in a weird way. You were in a situation you didn't like, so you checked out. You know, it's it's more, it's still the same subject in a way, but it's more compassionate and it's more of a healthier process. So in that way, I I see them as related and the record from a thematic standpoint, a lot of it's in the second person. So it's a lot of, to me, an internal monologue talking and reflecting and trying to do okay for itself, but also having this habit of being perhaps cruel or otherwise calculated about things and just sort of trying to find that middle ground in a a more objective way of staying there. Bleed was another track that really stood out to me, particularly lyrically, because I feel like a lot of your lyrics on other tracks are a little more abstract on this record, where Bleed, I feel like, is very literal and straightforward. So tell me about how the lyric writing process for Bleed differed from the other songs and why you thought the lyrics that you wrote for that song came out differently compared to some of your other tracks. To talk about Bleed is to talk about the individual who helped me produce this record, Polina. 
Um, I don't know if you were in the JC scene a decade ago when she was around here. Uh, she had a band called Paulina in the Pyramids um, with Susan Luton from 50 Furies yes. and such. And I met her when I was playing bass for Deb Davy, and I just really dug what she did at the time. And we sort of kept in and out of touch over the years, reconnected through the pandemic and got to hanging. I did a little demoing for a Babylon song or two. Uh, that didn't pan out, but that's not here or there. And I had seen her doing stuff. And I said, you know, I love what you do. Would you be interested in helping me produce this? And so I spent some time in a barn upstate in the Hudson Valley with her while she kind of brought voices out of me. That was the big thing about this record was to be as connected to myself as possible, to get as much of the humanity out of me as I could. And she said by the time she was done with me, I'd be able to turn it on and off like that. And she was not wrong. But at the time that we were doing this, Bleed was not a song, really. Or it was, but the lyrics weren't there. And she just said, go, just do something, just do something, do anything. And all of a sudden, I'm doing that. And I just start singing, my disease won't let me be. She's like, go, keep going, keep doing that, keep doing that. Put everything into that. Go, go. And I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I'm freaking out while I'm doing it because that is a wall being knocked yeah. down in me. That is me flat out admitting this in a way that I didn't know I was going to be able to do either gracefully or at all. So that song was me trying to figure out how to write about it in a way that was both objective in identifying that things are not great and that we're working on it. And part of that song is also Zappa inspired in, in a little bit of the, uh, it's a little ridiculous. It's kind of a pep rally of a song yeah. because I grew up in this community and it takes an unbelievable amount of energy to be an activist. It takes an unbelievable amount of energy to get the motivation and the enthusiasm going to be able to get shit done. And it's overwhelmingly a female driven field. Yeah. So when I would go to these events as a kid, I was pretty cynical about it because I was trying to figure my disorder out and I was a low energy person. So in my <laughs> distorted lens, I saw this enthusiasm, this way of trying to get people, you know, get their spirits lifted as like, who's excited to have hemophilia? <laughs> give me an H. And that line just stuck with me, yeah. give me an H. And it made me think of Zappa because he had this like fake, Bob Dylan impression that would come up in some songs like one more time on like Joe's garage <laughs> yeah. or uh, or on not Billy the Mountain, but like Eddie, are you kidding or something where it's like, you know, call it collect, call it connect, but call it today or that's call any vegetable. But it's just this stupid voice that would show up in Zappa work was sort of the inspiration for me getting to be ridiculous about this and I, I you know i went back and i re 
got rid of a couple of lyrics after we'd committed vocals to just get the, I, it, it was important that I get it right. The, the line bringing out the worst of me was not originally there, but it's a song I'm, I'm particularly proud of. If, you know, if not for that, then for the fact that I could get a fun little Nirvana pastiche down. Yeah, totally. It's a great song. All right, now we're going to play a couple of tracks from Redefine. We're going to hear two of the tracks we talked about, Borderlines and Dear Anxious.
should you ever choose to refrain all your pain? Ask a better kind of truth. Get a clue, a tattoo, a lesson learned, and there's the proof. Self-aware, now you care, you're on the hook. So follow through! Yeah, we just heard two songs from Max's new album, Redefine. It's out now. We heard Borderlines and Dear Anxious. You could check it out on your streaming platform of choice. You could also head to Max's Bandcamp, which is maxfeinstein.bandcamp.com, or check out his website at maxfeinstein.com. All right, Max. You picked some records. We're going to talk about them. I looked at your records. You did? What's up first? Well, what's first? If I can find my list, stand by. All good. I I took a bunch of screen caps of the Discogs. Beautiful. And there they are. I guess the first one is uh, Doolittle by the Pixies. Beautiful. What can I say about it other than it is probably the most prominent example of this celebrated subset of music that I like to call men shrieking into microphones? (laughs) Um, I would say that Black Francis in that respect has been influential on me. Because 
I, I don't really know. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe like what's his face from from Fugazi, Ian McKay, streaks into a microphone quite that well. Maybe Fred Snyder does, but the Pixies just had a little more propulsion in in that way. But that record. Monkey Gone to Heaven is like one of my favorite songs of all time. That's a great one. The uh, the numbers yeah. with, you know, when whatever that whole heaven. thing, God and numbers and hell and shit. Yeah. I just, love that. It makes no sense. There's a beautiful cello in there and you get this beautiful Joe Santiago guitar solo. And it just, I've always loved that you know, that balance that he had with Kim Deal. And they were that band that also didn't need a whole lot to do. Like, they would have... I mean, Monkey Gone to Heaven is literally, like, three chords. Yeah. Over and over and over again. So that that's always fun to me. And, and what you can do within that environment once you've created it. So that you don't have to build a new environment entirely. guess the next one that i saw well i saw two i go back and forth because i i hit it like a nice paul mccartney section in your discogs and paul mccartney 2 is a lot of fun because of how annoying it is <laughs> like temporary <Very> secretary, secretary. <laughs> <Jinx>. <laughs> it's it's paul mccartney as a vocalist just has so many different voices and on that song in particular where he's doing his like Neil Young impression or like when he's being a Texan in the middle of it it's just it's, it's an uncomfortable song and it's so much fun to share it with people who don't know about it but below that is Ram and Ram is Ram is Ram like that was kind of I, I got into the Beatles later in my life like in my early 20s and so I got into the solo work afterwards and Lennon Lennon never really did it for me as a soloist I loved him in the context of the Beatles but a lot of that stuff was not what I was after and it wasn't really what he was after sort of he wanted to bake bread basically yeah and Harrison Harrison just had the big backlog and he he really threw it all out there on all things, but McCartney knew what he was doing from the beginning. Like he was kind of the most fully formed musician out of all four of them. So you could get some really beautiful stuff out very quickly and that's the same thing, you know, within a span of three or four songs you have Heart of the Country and Uncle Albert and like Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey is one of my like favorite things because he's just stapling ideas together he's just taking little bits of songs and he does it on band on the run and he does it on you never give me your money and the greater medley at large but here it's just i, I forget who said it but they they said that that record's sort of the godfather of indie rock yeah I, i'm inclined to agree yeah I'm, i agree Uncle Al- 
Goo Goo Dolls, or no, not Goo Goo Dolls, uh, Gin Blossoms. The congratulations, I'm sorry. I love the Gin Blossoms from my wife's hometown of Phoenix, Arizona. It's one of those things, my wife also loves Gin Blossoms, but she didn't know the story. So I got to kind of... Oh, it's a crazy story that people <laughs> don't really know that their principal songwriter, yeah. like, died before they even really put out their first record or, like, yeah. re- you know, at some critical point in their career. I yeah, know. Doug Robbins or something? No. Yeah. yeah. They... It's it's funny because he was all over the first one. Like New Miserable yes. Experience is well, just the name alone is a is it sums up what this guy was about. He was a gifted malcontent of a writer, and he would write these songs, and then he'd get the guy with the really puerile voice to sing it, and he'd lay down these gorgeously saturated guitars. And you could really tell which ones were mostly his writing. And then they, I think he was drinking to cope. Yeah. And they kicked him out rather than try to get him. Or they tried to get him help and then he didn't want it and they kicked him out. But basically he, he just, he killed himself. And so the next record is them basically trying to deal with that. Which is where the name came, and I just loved that name. Congratulations, I'm sorry, because yeah. it's literally that. Like, oh shit, you guys are everywhere. Oh, and the guy who got you there blew his head out. Like, and it's one of those things where you don't like hear people talking about it so much, but that's the truth. Is like a lot of what he put down is not there. Like a lot of the things that made that first record so compelling are are very starkly not there. Yeah. There's there was that streak to it. This uh, this this hurt in that first record. That I mean, there's still hurt in the second record, but it's it's. I think the the stark contrast is what made me pick that. Yeah, great pop songwriting when yeah. it comes right down to it. Oh, for sure. And they they did prove that they are a very capable band without that guy. Yeah. Next would be Bula. Bula's Yoko. Great uh, Elephant Six related band. And this band, I feel like, is overlooked amongst the collective, but very, very, very good. They are. And I feel like this record in particular, well, this record was one of those last ditch efforts. And you can hear it in there. There's, There's this focus that is is very it is bitter there's you know like songs like mother loves you son and and especially where it's it's got this meanness to it but i found bula through uh, a drummer named ray mazza who i was in a band with way way back when he was he was doing the singing frontman thing and he he got me into them he got me into a few other groups but um i got yoko on my own and just hearing somebody really unpack their misery that's that's really and it's kind of like new miserable experience in that respect but 
just with the actual writer singing the songs and you get that sense of weariness on on Yoko you get that sense of weariness even on on songs like uh, Landslide Baby like you get that's that's probably my favorite song on that record is that it's the super chipper divorce basically and between that and and uh mother loves you son which is just such a drive and it just really it, it gets into it but there is the sense of finality on things like wipe your prints and run where it's like you know this is the end yeah and certain records are just that portentous but that was that was definitely one that when i'm when i'm in a, in a low place i i like to listen to that one because i feel like it captures that and i'm in, in a pretty pretty accurate way it's a lie it's a cop out and I know you know I know why you won't try cause you're scared and you're weak and you don't give a fuck about me and I do believe that you hate yourself and I knew you'd never stay and in a weird way so it is uh, for your own special sweetheart, uh, Jawbox, which Ray also got me into. Like, just straight-up noise rock that was trying to be more than noise rock. Yeah. Like, the way that they were, there's there's a lot of... There's a, they, they were doing a lot of things that were different, I, I feel like, for... Even even though they were doing this in the heart of the grunge era, they were like noisier than grunge. Yeah. So this record for Jawbox in particular, this is their major label debut. They signed with Atlantic Records after being with Discord for their first few records. And of course, during that era, era met with a lot of contention from people within the scene, but it really is their most... It's their most polished record. They still maintain a lot of those elements of their sound that made them really unique, but still kind of really they honing it. on the best part of their, their songwriting. And it's their most complete collection, I'd say, of songs. It's yeah. their best record. I would I would definitely say that for sure. Like Because the one they did afterwards sound like it's a great record, the one Aniello produced. Yes. But it does feel a little weary in that way the the, the cover of cornflake girl on that is yes. beautiful yeah great yeah great cover. It, it it but like just the fact that you had this thing that made sense even though it sounded like a lot of people were playing different songs from each other and that's sort of something that jay robbins like kept between between acts because of course they went on and they did burning airlines yeah which that burning airlines record is is also a favorite thing because it's weird it's got these weird angular guitars that are ugly as hell a lot of the time but they're anchored with this great drumming and these pretty beautiful vocal lines it's when you make it work like that you can you can forgive a lot of ugliness yeah awesome record Jawbox actually playing a bunch of shows coming up in New York, playing three nights at LPR. Oh, no I think shit. The, the first night is going to be Discord era. 
So it'll be their album Grip and I think they're self-titled or the one with the green cover. And then there'll be uh, my own special sweetheart. And then the third night is going to be that record that you mentioned. The the self-titled the one. The self-titled probably. one. Yeah, so the first two records, the Discord era uh, records, the Grip uh, Novelty. Novelty. That's right. Okay. Next one I grabbed was um, XTC. Ah, uh, my one of my yeah. my favorite band of all time. No shit. Yeah. Um, I I grabbed Drums and Wires, which is something my sister gave me a long time ago, and I think my favorite track on that has always been Ten Feet Tall. Good song. It's just they're they're an interesting band. There's this weird mania to them on that record. And I just found it, you know, they they were kind of a little talking headsy in that way. They were kind of like, they were contemporaries to talking heads, but I don't know that they ever overlapped. So interestingly enough, when XTC first came to the United States to play shows in 1978, they played, I think at the Beacon Theater with Talking Heads. So they did over. And then they played shows at CBG. Maybe not CBGB's. Yeah, I think XTC may have just played CBGB's by themselves during that run, but they were uh, friends, I'd say, or like, you know, co- they, they overlapped and knew each other, okay. played shows together and stuff like it that. It shows yeah. them. Like, that makes sense. And that... It's just a fascinating album. And I don't know a whole lot about XTC. I do know that they were... I, I know that uh, Partridge just kind of just stopped. I know that he like had a lot of anxiety and he yeah. had some traumatic experiences that made him say, no, I'm not touring, not doing it. Yes. Nope. And he did a record with um, Mike Keneally, of all people, uh, a few years back called Wingbeat Fantastic. That's pretty beautiful. It's, it's largely a Keneally effort, but you can hear a little bit of Partridge in there. I, if, I, I recommend it. I, I dig out on, on Keneally as a, as a writer. He's very interesting. Like you can, He was the last guitar player that Zappa had. And... He's been just kind of making the rounds as a backing musician for people, but his own stuff is very interesting for sure. Good pick. Love XTC. Love Andy Partridge. Colin Mulding, also a songwriter for XTC, didn't contribute as much. It was probably like, I'd say, 75-25 as far as the songwriting with Andy Partridge taking the lion's share. But Colin Mulding contributed a lot of awesome songs to that band too. There's something in the make, yes, I feel like I'm walking right a turn of I feel like I'm walking right a turn of Right to the chemistry is right. This boy has 
up? One thing I did want to ask you in the initial part that I overlooked when we were first talking, so but actually it's a great way to kind of conclude things about redefine. You know, so much of redefine as we had talked about is really putting your own story out there and how you kind of redefined your relationship with your condition. What do you hope people that are maybe in a similar situation dealing with similar circumstances, if they were to listen to it, what do you hope people take away from it? I hope that they feel a bit emboldened to reach out because for me, a lot of it started with having to admit things were not okay. And I hope other people are able to find that confidence in themselves to also admit things are not okay because when you do that, you find out that things aren't okay for a lot of other people, but there's that gradient of turbulence that makes someone like me who might be in a different thought place. That was a terrible way to put, you know, in a different, in a different mindset, still struggling for sure, but perhaps a little further along, you know, that's the kind of thing where somebody who's in it can maybe help somebody else who's in it. I I just hope people will share their stories too. I I do it to show other people that there are different ways to do it, that advocacy, uh, either self-advocacy or disorder advocacy or anything, it's not a rote singular way to do it. Uh, to me, this would just happen to be my form of expression. So I, I hope people will express themselves. Excellent. And... I know there's a release show at Finnegan's on April 1st. Emergencies is also playing. There's another band playing too, right? Yeah, uh, Jamie Rose uh, with uh, one of my favorite people in the world, Jamie Delafave, and I'm, I'm proud to say that's a band I'm also in. Awesome. So you're doing double duty double that duty. evening? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll be nice and limber. <laughs> so everyone, you can get Redefined via maxfeinstein.bandcamp.com. Anywhere else people can get it, your website, right? What yeah, is your website? It, Max Feinstein. You did it. Yeah. Oh my God, I did it. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. God forgives you. Um, the Yeah, it'll be out on all platforms. You can find me at maxfeinstein.com. You can find me on Instagram at blood and sound. And um, the, the record will hopefully, you know, It'll, it'll, I'll, I'll hopefully have some physical copy of it soon. I'm looking into cassettes. Uh, I, I ended up getting into a big war on Facebook about whether or not CDs are still a thing people care about. You know, vinyl's in a weird place right now. It's hard to get vinyl right now, pressed. It's definitely like the industry of vinyl is, is in a tricky place. All right, Max, thank you so much for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to hear one more song from Redefined before we go. It's a track we talked about earlier in the episode called Bleed. And, of course, you could get Redefined at maxfeinstein.bandcamp.com. It sees him being cynical, you see. It sees him being angry and resentful. Considering the lives we have to lead 
sit around. 